Well, I'm Alan Oxley, I'm Chairman of the APEC Study Centre. I'd like to welcome you uh, for coming tonight. Um, we're very pleased, Minister, Shadow Minister, that uh, you've agreed to give the APEC lecture for this year and we're very much looking forward to that. My job is to introduce Ziggy Swatowski, Dr Ziggy Swatowski, who's the Chancellor of RMIT. And I was thinking, Ziggy, that uh, it's very appropriate that we again have you associated with some of our activities related to Australia's economic interests and trade. I was looking through your records, because you've lived the Australian trade experience. Uh, some people, I think, have forgotten that you used to be Managing Director of Kodak, and after you left that job, you've said it's a very good example of how companies need to adjust to changing circumstances to survive in a competitive world. You then lived through the liberalisation and the uh, addition of international competitiveness to telecommunications, first as CEO of Optus and then CEO of Telstra. Uh, both are very important industries for competitiveness in Australia. They're inputs to producers of, uh, of products. And I think we don't pay enough attention to the fact that we benefit to a considerable degree from having a competitive telecommunications industry, which helps support economic integration. And now you're uh, the Chancellor of RMIT, which, Madam, is the largest exporter of education services in Australia. So your continuous involvement with Australia's international engagement uh, continues. And I'd like now to uh, welcome you and ask you to introduce uh, Mrs Bishop. Thank you very much, uh, Alan, for extracting or making those cosmic connections across my, uh, my career. Uh, distinguished guests, one and all, it is a pleasure to welcome you here this evening. And I join with Alan in especially welcome, welcoming our uh, distinguished uh, speaker this evening, the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, Julie Bishop. Um, we welcome you to the Emily McPherson Lecture Theatre here at RMIT University and to the Australian APEC Study Centre Lecture for 2012. Now, Emily Mack, as she is known affectionately, was an educator here in Melbourne at the turn of the sort of 19th, end of the 19th and into the 20th century. And it's fitting that we meet in this particular building which is dedicated to her achievements. And the education of the people of Melbourne was the core of Emily McPherson's life. It is the core now of what we strive to do. But there is one major difference. We not only provide education uh, to Melburnians and Australians in general, but also to students from Asia and from around the world. And really the transformation in our student population is astonishing. And if any of you had a chance to walk across campus this afternoon uh, for this function, you will have run into a whole lot of students preparing for the annual graduation ceremony on Wednesday. So they're, they're trying out their gowns, getting pictures taken with their families. And you will see the United Nations of students that RMIT has now or now serves and has assembled over the last uh, 20 years. The government's uh, Australian in Australia in the Asian Century White Paper canvases an agenda of relevance to all Australians and particularly to those in business and in the educational sector, as Alan has emphasised. Uh, many, if not all, facets of society in Australia have been or are engaged in Asia and with Asia in one way or another, and through many different forms, through uh, security treaties, trade and investment arrangements, tourism, religious and community-based organisational affiliations, and through the provision of services, finance, the professions, and of course through education. And we've seen momentous changes in the Asia-Pacific region effective from both within and without ranging from the change in leadership in China to the re-election of President Obama in the US. We are witnessing the emergence of Indonesia 
as a very strong economy and now the rise of democracy in Myanmar. So the Australian APEC Study Centre at RMIT is deeply engaged in capacity building in helping build the institutions and agencies needed in the Asia-Pacific region in APEC member economies. The centre works closely with agencies of the Commonwealth Government, including in particular DFAT, Treasury and AusAid in pursuit of APEC's goals and objectives and those of ASEAN. And we here at RMIT are committed to support the Australian APEC Study Centre. As a university, we are deeply focused on providing the best quality education to our students in Australia and our campuses in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam and through our associations in China, Malaysia, Singapore and Hong Kong. And we see the APEC Study Centre as a major contributor to our linkages within the Asia-Pacific region and it is our intention to see these relationships deepen and broaden within the work of the centre. Now to our speaker. Ms Bishop entered the Commonwealth Parliament as member for Curtin in 1998. She became Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party in 2007 and the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs in 2009, Shadow Minister for Trade in 2010. And prior to her entry into politics, Ms Bishop was a managing partner at Clayton Utes and has qualified with a degree in law from the University of Adelaide. Parenthetically, she was my minister during the time of the Howard government when I was the chair of the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation and that was a happy relationship at least as far as I can recall. It is my very great pleasure to invite the Honourable Julie Bishop to give the Australian APEC Study Centre Lecture for 2012. Chancellor Dr Ziggy Switkowski, it certainly was a happy relationship as I recall as well. Um, Professor Ian Palmer, Alan Oxley, Ken Waller, distinguished guests, friends of RMIT, friends of the Study Centre. I do take this opportunity to thank the University and the Australian Apex Study Centre for giving me the chance to be here this evening to present the 2012 Apex Lecture. Australia's involvement in the establishment of APEC in the late 1980s remains a powerful example of our middle power diplomacy. APEC's role in facilitating economic growth through cooperation and dismantling barriers to trade and investment is as important today as it was in 1989 when member economies first met in Canberra for an informal dialogue. In the years that have followed, APEC has grown to encompass 21 members, accounting in 2011 for more than 44% of global exports and more than 46% of global imports. Included amongst its members are some of the largest and most dynamic economies in the world. APEC's role in the region's remarkable economic development shouldn't be underestimated. Since its inception, the average tariff rate in the region has fallen from 16% to 5%. Intra-regional trade has flourished, expanding fivefold to something in the order of $16.8 trillion. A study published by Professor Peter Drysdale and the East Asia Forum found that being a member of APEC is associated with both higher trade volumes, not only among APEC members themselves, but between members and non-members. According to this study, APEC members' trade is 32% higher 
against its potential than that of EU members and 10% higher than that of NAFTA members. The list of other notable achievements includes APEC's contribution to concluding the Uruguay round of negotiations and to the creation of the World Trade Organization itself. The ongoing effects of the global financial crisis with the rise of protectionist sentiments around the world highlight APEC's continued relevance as a regional grouping. It's important that APEC continually evolve to reflect the mutable nature of the international economy and the challenges confronting member states. Questions will continue to be raised about APEC's role in light of the growing number of global and regional initiatives such as the East Asia Summit or ASEAN and the appropriateness of its soft institutionalism, the likelihood of achieving its ambitious targets regarding free and open trade and investment in the Asia-Pacific. Nonetheless, the Coalition strongly supports APEC's ongoing role in facilitating sustainable economic growth and it remains a key pillar in our thinking in regard to trade liberalisation. I warmly welcome the declaration reaffirming APEC members' opposition to protectionism following the 19th APEC Economic Leaders' Meeting in Honolulu. The Coalition is firm in its commitment to open markets, trade liberalisation and foreign investment. As we observed in the Coalition's discussion paper on foreign investment in Australia, released recently, quote, the importance of foreign investment to the Australian economy cannot be overstated. It has provided critical funding to projects, business and industry that has enabled the development of a sophisticated economy and that there is no sector in the modern Australian economy that has not benefited from foreign investment and it remains integral to Australia's economic expansion in the future. Uh, we have no intention of departing from current Australian policy of supporting foreign investment in the national interest, which has seen a massive increase in investment over recent years. KPMG suggests in a recent study that it was something like um, 45 billion US dollars invested by Chinese enterprises in Australian businesses alone in the six-year period to June 2012. I was in Beijing recently and our Australian embassy put the figure at something much higher than that, almost double that figure. Nevertheless, it's a massive amount of investment in Australia. We do believe that there is room for improvement in the Foreign Investment Review Board framework uh, in terms of transparency, accountability and consistency and that will be reflected in our policy which we will release following submissions um, to our discussion paper. Support for the principles of open markets, trade liberalisation and foreign investment is essential if Australia is to capitalise on the benefits arising from Asia's economic re-emergence as a regional and global economic powerhouse. Ensuring that Australia is well positioned to deal with the opportunities and challenges that will inevitably emerge as a result of the structural changes taking place in the region will be the defining task of all Australian governments for the foreseeable future. The rapid industrialisation of Asia's economic giants is transforming the global economy, shifting both economic power and strategic influence away from North America and Europe to Australia's north. Never before in history 
has the process of industrialisation occurred on such an enormous scale or at such an incredible pace as is now taking place in China? According to Mark Thirlwell, Director of the International Economy Program at the Lowy Institute for International Policy, China has experienced a level of industrialisation in just 26 years that took the United Kingdom 120 years, the United States 43 years to accomplish. While significant challenges to China's ongoing development remain, and these were the subject of the discussions at China's 18th National Congress held last month, which was um, televised globally and I found uh, to be quite compelling viewing late at night in hotel rooms in cities around the country. You tuned into CNN and there it was. But they raised a number of issues. Um, rising inequality, the massive urbanisation that's underway, corruption, environmental degradation and the ageing demographic, to name just a few. And the transformative nature of what is underway in China is undeniable. China is determined to complete its economic transformation and when it does so, the global balance of economic power will more closely resemble that which existed in the early 19th century when China strode the world stage like a colossus, accounting for something like a third of world GDP at that time. According to the World Bank, even if China grows a third as slowly in the future compared with its past, 6.6% a year on average compared with 9.9% over the past 30 years, it will become a high economy country sometime before 2030 and outstrip the United States in economic size. As China's re-emergence gathers pace, its immense power potential will be converted into actual power. It's astonishing to think that Napoleon Bonaparte's observation of the sleeping giant is still only in its early stages of waking up. As the recent escalation in tensions over various maritime and territorial dis disputes demonstrates, particularly as between China and Japan over the Daiyu or Senkaku Islands, depending upon which country you're in, the road forward will not always be smooth or uneventful. Encouraging all countries in the region to remain committed to dialogue and cooperation as championed by APEC, as well as enhancing the transparency around their defence forces, will be an important step in maintaining stability and prosperity in the region. What is less recognised but of significant consequence to Australia is the transformation underway in Indonesia. Few countries are more important to Australia than Indonesia. As the late distinguished Australian diplomat Alan Renouf remarked, it is the crucible of Australia's foreign policy. Since the Asian financial crisis, Indonesia has enjoyed a decade of sustained growth. Its economy is now twice the size of its pre-crisis peak. Indonesia has set itself the goal of transforming into a developed country by 2025. According to Citibank, Indonesia's economy will be the fourth largest in the world by 2040. Other projections, though slightly less optimistic, 
still place Indonesia in the top 10 global economies. Australia's relationship with Indonesia is approaching a crucial juncture in our shared history. I believe that a new framework is needed that will shape the direction of our bilateral relationship into the future. As we're already seeing, the economic re-emergence of Asia is having a significant effect on Australia's policy settings, causing temporary dislocations in the economy as labour and capital is redirected towards more productive ends. As a high-cost economy, Australia will always struggle to compete with countries with lower input costs. We must look at ways we can utilise our competitive advantages to value-add and feed into the growing number of regional supply chains. The growth in intra-industry and intra-firm trade opens up new opportunities for Australian businesses to engage with the region, particularly given the positive outlook for South-South trade, trade between emerging economies. As Dr Pangestu, Indonesia's former Trade Minister and current Minister of Tourism and Creative Economy, has written, South-South trade with China as a hub will drive global trade in the future. Australia's ability to capitalise on the region's economic growth relies on us putting in place the right policies, self-evidently. I have devoted um, much time as Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs and Trade developing policies that I believe will advance Australia's economic, strategic and cultural links with countries in our region. Central to our approach will be enhancing Australia's economic diplomacy. As countries around the world compete for improved access to emerging and developing markets, particularly in Asia, Australian businesses risk losing out if concerted action is not taken. I cite the examples of the United States and France through recent statements of their respective foreign ministers, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius. They have described how they propose elevating economic diplomacy as a priority for their respective governments. I propose a similar vision, that Australia likewise adopt a similar course in terms of placing economic diplomacy as a high priority in a coalition government. The coalition will review the operations of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to ensure that economic considerations, particularly support for Australian businesses, are given the attention they deserve with detailed qualitative and quantitative objectives in place. We will also review our overseas diplomatic presence to ensure it more properly reflects Australia's diverse range of national interests in the 21st century. We will ensure our diplomatic resources are centred in the dynamic regions of the world and we must ensure that our visa policies are coordinated with our economic policies. In a speech to the Sydney Institute in March, I stated that Australia should be in the business of opening new diplomatic posts staffed by skilled diplomats with a level of access, understanding and presence that can help our companies do business overseas and attract new business to Australia. I believe that our diplomats should be trained in economic skills so that business benefits from our diplomatic network. Another key pillar of our economic diplomacy efforts will be a renewed focus on finalising Australia's current free trade negotiations. While our focus will be regional, our trading interests are indeed global. 
Easing access for Australian exporters and investors is essential if the opportunities stemming from Asia's growth are to be expanded beyond the energy and mineral resource sectors. The benefits of doing so need little explanation. In a paper entitled Imagining Australia in the Asian Century, How Australian Businesses Are Capturing the Asian Opportunity, the Boston Consulting Group reported that, despite the rapid growth of Asia, Australia's share of non-resource imports into the region has fallen over the past decade. If Australia could arrest this decline or even increase its non-resource sector its non-resource share of Asian imports to the peak levels of 2001, Australia could gain between 10 billion Australian dollars and 30 billion dollars in annual export revenue by 2021. I returned on the weekend from leading a delegation of senior coalition shadow cabinet ministers to China as guests of the Chinese government. Uh, the delegation consisted of Warren Truss as leader of the Nationals and shadow minister for infrastructure and transport, uh, Senator George Brandis, the shadow attorney general and shadow minister for the arts, Senator Nigel Scullion, the Deputy Leader of the National Party and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Affairs and Senator David Johnston as Shadow Minister for Defence. Four of our six-member leadership team were in this delegation and I'm told that it was the first high-level Australian political visit to Beijing since China's leadership transition. The delegation met with Li Yanchao, a prominent member of China's Politburo and head of the organisation department, among others. And I certainly can't complain about the level of access that we had over a week in Beijing, Shandong Province and Shanghai. During our visit, I reaffirmed the coalition's commitment to concluding a free trade agreement with China, if it is not concluded prior to the next election, in the first year of taking office, and that seemed to be well received. Negotiations for a free trade agreement with China commenced in 2005. Other countries, including New Zealand, have concluded agreements, but not Australia, over the past seven years. Despite its potential significant benefits for the Australian economy, the Government of Australia has shown little interest in concluding the agreement. Indeed, I was informed by the Chinese that our current Minister for Trade has called a China-Australia free trade agreement overrated. A joint feasibility study carried out in 2005 found that an FTA with China could have boosted Australia's economy by US $18 billion over the period 2006 to 2015, hardly deserving of a dismissive overrated. We will also invest the political will that is needed to conclude agreements with South Korea and Japan, as well as pushing ahead with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I've also confirmed that Hong Kong will be a potential free trade agreement partner. It is an open economy, but it is the window in and the window out of China, and in a number of respects it is an exciting prospect for us. Uh, we have nominated a number of other free trade agreements that will receive our focus. In regard to the complex issue of investor-state dispute settlement provisions, the ISDS, 
I have stated on a number of occasions that the Coalition will consider each case on its individual merits, on a case-by-case -case basis. I note the recent commerce, uh, comments of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, the National Farmers Federation and the Australian Institute of Exports, all of whom are worried that the ISDS issue is threatening key free trade agreement deals. I question the all-or-nothing approach of the current government. Its rigid inflexibility on this issue is becoming a problem for our ability to advance free trade deals. Enhancing Australia's trade interests in Asia ultimately means building trust as partners. This requires patient diplomacy, not reactionary media-driven approaches that we've seen in recent times. It will, for example, take some effort and commitment to restore Indonesia's faith in Australia as a reliable trading partner after the government's ban on live cattle exports, made without so much as a phone call to the government of Indonesia to discuss the issue with them. That is no way to treat a trading partner. That is no way to treat a neighbour. It means a return to the principle of mutual respect and a focus on common interests that characterised Australian foreign policy under the Howard government. In circumstances where a fully comprehensive free trade agreement may not be achievable, consideration should be given to signing an agreement that locks in gains in particular sectors. We recognise the benefits of multilateralism in trade, but given that the Doha round is sleeping or perhaps comatose, uh, we should be seeking out bilateral and regional free trade agreements wherever we can. The extent to which Australia benefits from Asia's growth will also depend in large part on our ability to understand the social, political and economic systems in which our neighbours operate. Should we be elected, the Coalition will establish a new Colombo plan that captures the spirit and vision of the Menzies Era initiative. Through the scholarship program known as the Colombo Plan, the Menzies government reached out to the region, drawing in its best and brightest students to study in Australia. In doing so, it built a legacy of friendships and understanding between peoples and countries in our region that exists to this day. Over 30 years, about 40,000 students became alumni of Australia's Colombo Plan. In the many instances where Colombo Plan alumni have risen to positions of influence in their home country, this investment has been invaluable. I'm still surprised uh, on the number of occasions travelling in our region when I'm approached by a minister, a legislator, a business leader to say that they studied at a university in Australia under the Colombo Plan. In what I believe will become a signature policy of the Abbott government, we will introduce a program for Australia to send our best and brightest students out into the region. We want it to be the norm, not the exception, that Australian students spend part of their tertiary studies in a university in our region. A rite of passage, if you like, for a university student in Australia. The opportunity for our students to learn from the culture, politics and society of Australia's regional neighbours will be of enormous indeed I would say incalculable benefit both individually and to our nation. As the International Education Advisory Council stated, Australians who study abroad bring home new skills, ideas and perspectives. 
Such knowledge can lift innovation and productivity, helping our firms and institutions to step up to a higher level of competitiveness with smart firms likely to boost output and incomes across the country. As a former Minister for Education in the Howard Government, enhancing opportunities for Australian students to study abroad is an issue that's been close to my heart for some time. In 2006, I chaired an inaugural Asia-Pacific Education Ministers' Meeting. It was held in Brisbane. We had about 26 education ministers there from what we call Greater Asia-Pacific, extending from Turkey through to the Marshall Islands. And we discussed what actions on education and training could be agreed upon to strengthen good relations in the region. And the final communique highlighted my view that student and academic mobility provides the basis for friendship, mutual respect and understanding. I have commenced dialogue within the constraints of being in opposition, uh, but I have commenced dialogue with ministers and universities in the region, some of course are now among the best in the world, and with our higher education sector in Australia. And there is considerable enthusiasm for enhancing two-way student exchange. Uh, there are numerous issues including institutional capacity, student visas, course recognition, but I'm very excited by the response that we've had to date to our policy. I also welcome the inclusion of education reforms on the agenda at the APEC Leaders Summit in Vladivostok. The Coalition also aims to enhance Australia's engagement with the region through greater language education. We will work urgently with state and territory governments to ensure that at least 40% of Year 12 students are once more taking a language other than English within the next decade. This will mean more language teachers and there are a number of opportunities to engage with Asia uh, in that regard. Rebuilding Australia's language capabilities will be a generational task. It will not be easy, but we are determined to make a strong start. Uh, we want a large body of our population to be Asia literate, able to work in Asia and work with Asian business people, with investors, with the tourists here in Australia. And as we're in Melbourne, I should commend Premier Bailu for his vision in this area. Uh, he didn't need a white paper to be convinced of the need for action. So through these policies and others that we are developing uh, to marshal our hard and soft power from defence to trade and aid and diplomacy, the coalition intends to ensure that Australia is well positioned to take advantage of the opportunities and manage the challenges that will arise from the global shift in economic power to Asia. I look forward to being the Foreign Minister. Um, perhaps in these days of gender wars, I should say, Australia's first female Foreign Minister under a Tony Abbott-led government, um, who will, if given the opportunity, deliver on these policies for the betterment of our country and our neighbourhood. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here this evening.